Blessings, Divine Nobodies fam. You know, one thing that Jen and I are huge advocates for are developing ways in which we can improve our lives through making spirituality and wellness not just a topic of conversation, but a lifestyle. You know, we live in a very fast-paced, hyper-accelerated world, and so it's important to find healthy ways that we can optimize that life. Let me tell you guys, I discovered this brand, Happy Hippo, a few years ago, and it was during a time where I just couldn't handle the overtly stimulating effects of coffee anymore. I just couldn't do it. But I still wanted a natural way to put a little pep in my step, if you know what I mean. Whether you're someone that needs a lot of energy throughout the day or someone that just likes to relax at home with a nice book, you know, nestled in your hammock, cuddling with your partner, all the things. Happy Hippo has quality herbal products meant to enhance and optimize all areas of the life you currently live. They offer a wide variety of lab-tested, GMP-approved croton powder, capsules, and extracts from around the world. They have products that can promote well-being, inner peace, also products that can complement a productive and busy life. You know, if you're like Gary Vee and you just like to crush it at life, Happy Hippo will get you there, guys. So if you're curious about this magical plant from Southeast Asia, because that's where it comes from, just visit their website at happyhippoherbals.com and search their huge catalog of Katam strains to find one that resonates with you. Trust me, guys, you'll find one if you believe. If you're new to Katam and aren't sure where to start, well, Happy Hippo Herbals does a great job of providing descriptions for each product so you know exactly how it will benefit your life. Go to happyhippoherbals.com and use promo code DivineNobodies at checkout for 15% off your first order. That's promo code DivineNobodies at checkout for 15% off your first order. Trust me, fam, you'll be feeling all kinds of vibes. Thank you for listening to the Divine Nobodies Podcast with Eric Ajna and Jennifer Lynn. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe so you never miss a show. If you're on Instagram, please follow us at Divine Nobodies Podcast and join our ever-growing community of lightworkers and spiritual visionaries. Together, we can raise the frequency of our planet and bring in a new era of awakening and understanding. Welcome to our tribe. And now your hosts, Eric Ajna and Jennifer Lynn. Thank you for tuning in to Buy Nobody's Podcast. How you doing, Jen? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. You look like a little warrior goddess empress. Where's Ooh, your sword thank at? You. Thanks. Ooh, it's in my back. Where's that little Shh. medallion? You know what that medallion that you're wearing on your chest reminds me of the uh, the Auron from The NeverEnding Story. Do you remember that? Well, unfortunately, this is just a medallion from Forever 21. Oh. So. <laughs> That's what you want us to think, Jen. Yeah. I understand you're in disguise. Where's your sword? No sword today. No, sir, today I, I didn't come prepared. It's yeah. okay. It's okay. Glad to be back. Thank you guys for tuning in. It's been a what pretty wild, actually, a few weeks. I'm glad you're back, Jen. I know that you were back a few episodes back, but the episode that we just posted up just recently was with Sarah, and I had to like give this whole confession about how you got COVID and recovered from it. Yeah, I, was su- I wasn't super sick, um, thankfully. I was only sick for a couple days, but, you know. Yeah, it's because yeah. you're wearing that medallion around your neck, Jen. It's, yes, my safety medallion and the O-negative blood. I was like, oh, I have the alien blood. I'm never going to get it. And right. then, but if you like take it off and hold it up to the sky, Captain Planet will come out, you know, with all of our powers right. combined. Yeah, yeah. So how's your, how was your uh, Valentine's Day? Uneventful. So oh, yeah? Jeremy, yeah, Jeremy was out of town. He was working. So I was by myself and I got to watch whatever I wanted on TV and I went to bed early. It was glorious. But you know what? You can look at it as like a, a, a day for self-care, at least for you. 
you take yeah. that time to be, you know, to exercise the love that you have for yourself. Self-love is important. I totally did that. You know, I almost took a bath, but then I remembered I don't like taking baths. So I didn't do that. So instead I just like gave myself a nice, like good scrub, you know, on my <laughs> face and rubbed my eyes scrub. really hard, you know, when that feels really good and then yeah. just watched a little TV and went to bed early. Oh, very, very cool. Mine was a little different. I, I don't know at what point in life where Valentine's Day became a thing. Maybe it's just one of those things that come along with being an adult. Because I was always one of those people that's like, why do we need to celebrate Valentine's Day? You know, like, why do we need to go and buy things for our significant others? Why don't we just love them exactly the same way that people love others on Valentine's Day every single day? Every day, day. yeah. So I thought of it as just sort of like this way for consumer capitalistic sort of America to indulge in buying materialistic things for their partner. And Mm -hmm. I guess you can look at it that way. But at some point, it became this sort of universal thing. And I sort of got on the boat with that. I wanted to be a team player. And this isn't the first time I actually celebrated Valentine's Day, but I actually got some flowers. I got some flowers, Jen. Some flowers and some chocolate. You succumbed to the Hallmark holiday. Look at you. I did the whole thing. You got flowers? But it was a spiritual experience in itself. And I want to explain to you why. Okay. Okay. I never been one to buy flowers because I had this whole idea of like, well, if metaphorically flowers represent love and flowers die, why would I want to give that sort of impression to my significant other, right? But I, okay. I realized, Jen, that I was looking at it all wrong. I was oh. looking at it all wrong. Okay. I brought home these flowers. I'm not going to get into the entire story, but I had this sort of mystical experience with the flowers that lasted over a course of, I want to say, three or four days. And it was really, really profound and impactful for me. I brought these flowers home, put them in a vase. I accepted in my mind that these flowers were cut off from the source and that they would eventually die a lot faster than they would had they actually been connected to the original plant. Mm-hmm. So I was just filled with this sort of like, oh, I was a little sad. These flowers were beautiful though. They were like an arrangement. They had these lilies that were in there with them. There was like this whole thing. It was like this whole bouquet of exploding colors. And I thought it was really beautiful. And of course my, my partner thought it was beautiful. So it was in the kitchen and it was in the vase. And it had these, I don't know what the lilies, you, you probably know what I'm talking about, where some of them are closed and they haven't yet bloomed. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself like, wow, they cut these before these flowers were able to bloom. And I just got so sad because I thought like, wow, like this plant went its entire life to kind of get to this point and it'll never actually get to that point because whoever it is that cut these flowers removed it from the source. So you thought because they were removed from the source, they would never bloom. I mean, it seemed that way, you know, <laughs> it, it, it seemed that You're way. You're such a boy. I, but, oh my but gosh, get, that's such a boy thing to say. <laughs> but this is the thing, Jen, I'm not usually one to buy flowers. So I didn't know what that whole experience is like. Mm-hmm. I love, I love walking by flowers. I go to the Huntington Gardens, Botanical Gardens in order to see the flowers. I've been to the LA Arboretum. Like I absolutely love the way flowers smell. I love the way that they look. Something really beautiful about flowers, but never have I ever been the type of person that would buy flowers and take them home, Mm -hmm. right? So that maybe that experience was a little different for me. Anyways, so I had it in my mind like, okay, well, this batch of flowers perhaps suffering because they had been cut off from the source and they'll never ever get the opportunity to bloom in the way that they normally do. Gee, was I wrong? I'd get up every single morning and I'd see them and they were so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And uh, one day, I think it was maybe three or four days in, I noticed that the lilies started to bloom and they just looked so beautiful, Mm -hmm. right? And I thought to myself like, wow, it's like no, my perception of it was that it was suffering. What incentive does it have to bloom if it's it's eventually going to die? It's not going to be tapped into this sort of like cyclical nature of a flower that's attached to the soil or every single season it'll bloom and dying sort of that do that reoccurring thing because it's cut off. I figured that that process was completely suspended. I came back three or four days and it was completely blooming. And I thought to myself, it's like, wow, no matter if it was dead or cut off from the source, life still finds a way 
to dance, even if it's just for a couple days. Because when I walked by and I saw these flowers blooming, they were the most gorgeous, beautiful flowers. And when I saw it, it looked so confident in Mm -hmm. being the flower that it was. It just looked so (laughs) effervescent and beautiful. And it literally was blooming like it was still a part of the garden. And I just, it was just really, really profound and, and beautiful because no matter what the circumstances are, no matter if it had been cut off from its source, it'll still find a way to tap into its own beauty and allow that to sort of bloom even for a short period of time. And it had me thinking about my life, had me thinking about my life, Jen. <laughs> I love this. Okay. What were you thinking? It had, no, it had me thinking about how I perceive suffering or not even just me, just, just how we perceive suffering in life, which segue, by the way, this is what we're going to be talking about today, FYI, FYI. which is our human's relationship to suffering, my relationship to suffering, your relationship. It's all, it's all, you know, this huge complex thing because everybody has so many ideas around what this is. But I thought that it would make sense for us to just sit and have a conversation about it because obviously everything that I thought about these flowers was wrong in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Like my perception of its suffering was wrong. I have some trivia for you related to flowers since it sounds like you are a flower expert. (laughs) I'm not a flower expert. I'm a flower appreciator. So, and I I don't even know. Actually, I do know why I know this. So, um, and I'm going to tell you why I know this. So roses, okay. Mm -hmm. You see roses all over. What country exports the largest number of roses? Country exports the largest number of roses? I don't know. I'm just going to go out and say Mexico. I'm going to say Mexico because it's right there. You're pretty close. Yeah. Ecuador. Ecuador? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It totally makes sense. Ecuador is like a tiny, tiny country too, but um, they're the largest exporter of roses. And the only reason why I know this is my friend Paula is from Ecuador. (laughs) So she told me that and I was like, oh, is that true? And I Googled it and it's true. Yeah. I see those people selling roses all over the place. I always wondered where they're from. (laughs) There's actually this person at the PCC flea market, by the way, Jen, this is something you do know about me is I'm really in the pothos plants. Mm -hmm. Really, really in the pothos plants, got really into it during pandemic. But depending on where you go... They're ridiculous amounts of money. Like you can pay thirty to to fifty dollars for a pothos plant. There's this person at the PCC flea market that sells them for like ten to fifteen bucks, and they're the huge one that look like a head of like eighties hair. You know? Oh, I love them. Yeah. Super big. Just I love that. letting you know in case you look for some pothos. Anyways, but yeah, yeah, I didn't know that they were from Ecuador. That's a good. That's a good fun fact. Anyway, so it's a good fun fact. Yeah. So we wanted to just dive in here and. Uh, Take it a little serious because this can be a serious thing, but it really depends on how we look at it, which is our human being's perception of suffering. And it makes me think of this story that I heard a while back and one that I've shared many times before that I share with other people, which was a talk that I heard a while back from Muji. Muji's an Eastern Advaita Vedanta spiritual teacher. And there was a student that asked him one day, he was like, you know, why, why am I experiencing so much suffering? You know, why do we experience so much suffering? This guy in particular was like, I'm experiencing so much suffering. And uh, Muji responded and he just says, you know, we don't experience suffering. We suffer our experiencing. So he kind of twisted it around. He says, mm-hmm. we don't experience suffering. We suffer our experiencing. And it may sound kind of like a play on words, but it's true if you really think about it. Because experience, just in and of itself, like the magnitude of experience is both indifferent and universal. We can look at that as life. Mm-hmm. It is just what it is. It just exists in the flow and the cycle from which this three dimension and sort of exists. So it is our projections. What he was trying to say is it's our projections of that experience that creates the suffering. And so I think to myself, okay, well, we got to like kind of dissect this a little bit. And I wanted to actually start at God, right? There's, it, it doesn't matter what lineage or what denomination of God you believe in. Somebody somewhere, unless you're Sam Harris, thinks that there's a God, right? Mm-hmm. And if we're going to take that position, we've heard several times before that we are created in the image of God. And we can kind of take a really superficial look at this and be like, okay, well, I'm not talking about just like our faces or our eyes, because God is not a a force with human attributes. 
We think of being created in the image of God. We're not talking about there's some guy in the sky that has legs, two hands, two eyes, that whole thing. He may have those things, but that's not just him, right? Yeah. When we when he says being created in the image of God, he's talking about the sort of driving force of God being a creator, right? So if I think of being in, created in the image of God, we got to really think of what that means. So I think that God gave us some really extraordinary powers as creators. And so how do we get that sort of impression? Well, we get to look around us first, outside of just being a human, we can see that God is obviously really fucking cool because we have flowers, we have sunsets, we have- Mushrooms. We have mushrooms, exactly, exactly. (laughs) See, that's just, that's one of those things. We just have so many beautiful things about life. We have to question where it came from. Obviously it came from God, but how how it sort of exemplifies itself in us is this sort of baseline level of, of, of love and creativity that us humans have. Like we can create the craziest shit with our hands, with intention, with love. We can take care of things. We have the ability to create life. Women can create life. We can create beautiful art, really amazing music. That is a creative force. You can almost look at that as the sort of creative force of God. But at the same time, there's a huge responsibility that comes along with that because Human beings can also suck, right? Like we can fuck some shit up. That's for sure. Right? We can be really, really destructive mm-hmm. with our power, right? Yeah. And so I, I, I think we really have to take this into consideration because we don't realize that we have this power because of this sort of antiquated perception we have of God, him being the sort of person that kind of moderates everything around us. And it sort of allows us to escape responsibility for our own actions. And that's when you have questions like, well, why does God allow so much suffering? Why does, a, why does God allow evil and all this craziness to exist? And that's a really common question that we get, right? And oh, the yeah, only thing the I time. can say is it's the wrong question because God doesn't allow those things. Yeah, the answer I mean, is the question. Not in the way that we, we think. God doesn't create the suffering. Human beings create the suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, we absolutely. And the same way that we generate suffering, we can also generate happiness. Like, exactly. You can generate both. Yeah. So and that, it's your and that, choice. And that choice is a choice that I think a lot of people don't even realize that we have. God is both of those things. He is, he is creativity, but he's also destruction. As it pertains to this life, death exists. It creates the conditions for us to exist in this life that we're in right now. Like death has to exist. You can look at it in some sort of a nihilistic way, but that's not suffering. Death exists because it's part of this just grander scale of activity that allows us to exit and enter into this life multiple times for reasons of learning and things like that, right? So there's a functional reason behind death, but what I'm talking about is suffering. Suffering is different. So death in and of itself isn't isn't a bad thing. There's a functional reason behind that. But what I'm more talking about is is suffering. Suffering is different. We don't realize how much power we have as creators, mainly because mm-hmm. we don't think that we have a hand in creating this reality in the way that God has, right? Yeah. So we see ourselves secondary. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So this ignorance is potentially the cause of the destruction and the suffering we create. Because we feel that we are separate from God, not not even realizing that we ourselves have the opportunity to either create suffering or not create suffering, right? There are a lot of things that are going to happen in life that aren't fair, a shit ton of them, right? And you'll notice after you've accepted one, another one will take its place. And so what do we do? Every single day, you overcome one sort of obstacle, another sort of obstacle comes into place, and we we can continue down this perception of like, wow, this is just suffering. Why am I just suffering every single day? So what, what is the option that we have? Do we fight life or do we flow with it and realize? that there are so many maybe teachings that are being taught for people all around the world. And we have to really, really check in with ourselves and change our relationship, I think, to suffering by understanding exactly what it is, you know? Yeah. I think of it like we are like 
CNN and Fox News. Like we are just spin doctors spending our spinning our own story, right? So we tell ourselves like a perfect example is whenever you break up with someone or they break up with you, right? And you tell yourself, oh my God, I'm never going to be happy again. I'm never going to find another person like this. My life is never going to be the same. My life is ruined. It's like we have no way of knowing any of that for sure. We're yeah. just kind of making that story up ourselves and we're spinning our own narrative. So the best way to do that or the best way to stop doing that, right, is to meditate and cut out all the noise and then free yourself from re-entrenching yourself in that trauma. Yeah, it's absolutely too. And there's a lot of so many things having coming to that realization that we don't really know as much as we think is really, really profound because we think that we do. Mm-hmm. We think that we have an idea of how things are going to pan out. And in some cases, yeah. based off of our activity, we can kind of calculate that the potentials of that, but we put mm-hmm. so much emphasis on it needing to be a certain way right. that we create this sort of tension. And I think that's a really, really important thing because we have to acknowledge the fact that life is change, but life for whatever changed. reason, we think that it's not. You know, and and uh, embracing the change, like, and I think of the pandemic as like a perfect example of embracing change. So as, as horrible as it was in the beginning, right, where we were also fearful of our family's lives and our lives and health and our jobs and our livelihood and what's going to happen next and all of the unknown. But think about all the wonderful things that happened out of the pandemic, right? There's a lot of really, really good things that happened. Like, for example, working from home, like that's a whole new industry that wasn't there before. And we totally adapted to working from home. And from working from home came the great resignation. So people started leaving their jobs that they were miserable at and learned how to live with less and learn learned how to appreciate the small things in life, learned how to appreciate um, time with their families more and being at home more. I mean, there's so many like really great lessons that came out of such a negative event. And all of that had to do with change. It was just embracing this new way of life and embracing this change. And, you know, sometimes sometimes our worst nightmares actually turn out to be our biggest blessings. Yeah, and, absolutely. And in and, the pandemic's case, like for me, it certainly was. I mean, I got a, an opportunity to reset my life. And I think a lot of other people did too. Like, was it not really to discount, a- not to discount any of, well, let me just preface that with anybody who lost someone from the pandemic. I'm, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. Like uh, I'm talking about more of, of the change in culture, not the horrible things that happened to people. So I don't want oh, any yeah. hate mail from that. Yeah. yeah. Like we have to really, we have to think about like, was it, was it a change and a destruction of people's happiness or was it a change in a destruction that people were just comfortable with? Because even mm-hmm. when before the pandemic, there were lots of reasons for people to think that life was all about suffering. We didn't just right. start suffering just because the pandemic happened. All this stuff was happening. There was financial despair, mm-hmm. socioeconomic crisis. There was uh, income inequality. There was racism. Mm-hmm. All this stuff was already here and it still is. It was already there. Yeah. So this whole thing <laughs> exactly. just sort of like, it reminds me of that quote by Rumi that says, you know, you have to keep breaking your heart until it opens. The heart of our humanity finally broke open, right? And what spilled out Mm -hmm. were all these things that we have been trying to avoid for most of our lives because we Mm -hmm. were so engulfed in the sort of rat race of life, being so kind of enmeshed in our securities and things that we found security in, things that prevented us from really asking those deep fundamental questions about whether or not we're happy, whether or not this is sustainable. And it created an entirely new set of circumstances that, of course, in the beginning, we went kicking and screaming. Every single person did that because there was a lot of uncertainty Mm -hmm. there. There was a lot of of fear. And Mm -hmm. that's the best way that I can equate it, which we usually do, is the sort of dark night of the soul experience. This was a, a a collective change that people were not prepared for. Right. And- Human beings are also very, very adaptable sort of creatures. And so we had to find ways to adapt. And you're absolutely right. Like it it changed the way that lots of companies and human beings looked at the way that they 
live their lives. And I think mm-hmm. one of the positives was that they realized that how things were going were not sustainable. You know why? Because it was so easily broken. Right. You know? Yeah. If it was sustainable, we would have been able to sort of move through it. But it, we, we realized, at least I did, how unstable a lot of this sort of machine was, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think because of that instability there, people acknowledging the fact that, wow, this thing isn't as stable as we think, it allows us to really, really, really authentically look and realize that we shouldn't depend on something that is so shaky, that is so unstable. We should maybe look at life a different way and start really focusing on the things that I can change or the things that are sustainable which is acknowledging that maybe, maybe it's important for us to start looking at the way that we perceive life a little differently. You know, the bad news is we are the creators of our suffering. The good news is we are the creators of our suffering. Of our suffering. Yeah, right. exactly. And why do we always have to lead with change being bad? I mean, it's like, I don't know why change has a a negative connotation all the time. Like change is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Yeah. Things are changing all the time. I mean, things change every single day in small ways, even if you're not really noticing it. Like change is constant. It's inevitable. It's going to keep happening. You know, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. And I think that 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 change is one of the main, that fear of change is one of the main Mm -hmm. catalysts of of suffering. You know, life can be happening outside, right? The sun can be shining. The flowers can be blooming. You can be breathing, birds chirping, all that good shit. We can have, we have access to, to food, shelter, friends, family. And yet one thought can creep into your mind and shift all of that. Everything that you think about all of those things in an instant. <laughs> so right? true. You end mm-hmm. up making, in an instant, you end up making your creation more important than the creator's creation, right? And we have the free will to believe all of this. You know, the universe I feel is so loving and God is so loving that allows us to think whatever the fuck we want. And instead of feeling gratitude for this freedom that we we typically feel, we convince ourselves that there's a problem with all of it, right? We mm-hmm. convince ourselves that the universe is not loving because the sun doesn't shine the way that we want it to. We can complain that, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day when we want there to be like 27. We can complain because <laughs> we want nine hours of sleep instead of seven. So we're always in this process of wanting to change the fabric of what something is instead of just being grateful for it, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, I don't feel like Chinese today. I want Mexican food and we're not going to be happy. Or, you know, my girlfriend, she's not fulfilling this type of desire in me. So I just got to go out and I should, you know, why can't we just have two, two partners? You know, we're always wanting something other than what we have. We're not happy. Yeah. So true. Yeah. yeah. It's that resistance to change. I think that's a really important thing. And I think the first place to start with that, you know, and also too, I've, I've fallen into this. I'm a human being. I've, I, I've been one of those people too. And I think as long as we're human, it's so easy based off of the world that we live in to fall into this. I have situations where I like, I can't believe that I live in, you know, a world that is moderated by the government in which we live. I want it to be different so bad. It's somehow in my mind, I, I create this sort of dialogue in my brain of like life, that there's there's a, a more perfect way of living as if somehow I've actually been there before, you know? Maybe you have. And I feel like I have, I think from an emotional and spiritual perspective, but I find my ego sort of intervening sometimes and being like, man, life can be so different. We have all these people fucking around in the government, making it so difficult for other people. And so I just, and I started thinking to myself, like, I feel so much more freer now and sort of not bound to these sort of governmental structures that we have. And I think to myself, like, well, what has changed? I think my perception of life has changed, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm also accepting the fact that Things have been pretty much the same now as they've been when I was young. I'm not talking about my life, but I'm talking about just the general scope of how, let's just say, our governance works or the world in which we're a part of. Wars have always existed. Poverty has always existed. All these things that we see as negative have always existed. But I think the difference is I've changed my perception of those things so that I don't allow them to completely take me over. So I think it's important that we 
understand or take some time to actually understand our suffering, right? Yeah. And, and also have some compassion of other suffering too, because we think we have it bad, but there are so many other people that have it way worse than we do, you know? So I don't know. Misery loves company, but so does compassion, right? So if you're hurting, like do something kind for someone else that's hurting too and yeah. kind of push yourself out of your comfort zone. You know, it's like when you're, when you're, um, let's just say it this way, when we're sick, if we got COVID, what would be the first thing that we typically do? When we know for a fact that we're sick, we can feel it in our chest, we feel it in our entire body, and there's this certainty that there's something wrong, what do we do? We want to understand and make sure that that's what it is. So we go mm -hmm. to the hospital. We go to the mm -hmm. hospital to find out if there's something wrong. That is the inquiry into wanting to know about something so that we're not ignorant. Because if we do nothing, if we don't go to the hospital and then we're sick, we can potentially die. Nobody wants that. We ultimately don't want that. So I kind of look at it the same way. Why is our relationship to suffering not looked at that way? If you feel this sort of feeling, this energy that happens inside of you of suffering, the, the first thing, at least for me, or the thing that makes the most sense is to want to find out more about it. But the crazy thing is we don't approach our suffering or our fear in the same way that we would if we knew wholeheartedly that we were sick. Somehow when it's emotional suffering, when it's an emotional sickness, we live in this sort of denial. We can't accept the fact that we may actually be the cause and the effect of our own suffering. So we won't inquire as to what it is. And what will mm -hmm. end up happening is we'll end up slowly, slowly deteriorating ourselves by allowing it to eat us alive. And then you start so, to manifest more negativity and more bad things. You start to feel worse, you know, yeah. whatever you're putting out in the, into the field is what you're getting back. So I think it's like, it's important that we, we really inquire as to what suffering means and what suffering is. There's this sort of nuclear family, maybe unrealistic expectation that people have about raising their children. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, most parents don't want their children to be exposed to any type of negativity or any type of suffering. And that's like a worthy want or desire, but there has to be some level of balance there. You know, like Buddha, for example, he came from royalty. He was completely shielded by any sort of perception that life was imperfect. Buddha had everything and, and, and he had all the money. He had all of the wealth. He never, ever saw any any bit of suffering in his life until one day he, he left and he saw an old man outside that was old. He never saw that before. He like His father completely shielded him from all of that. And when Buddha saw it, he didn't know what the fuck to think. He just kind of freaked out. He's like, what is this all about? And I bring that up because I think um, a lot of parents kind of approach parenting the same way. It's like we shield our kids from understanding maybe what these polarities mean. And so they never, ever grow up knowing how to handle these type of feelings when they come up. They As grow adults. up never knowing how to handle the change in life because you have raised them to think that life is always going to be a certain way. And then you get older. And this is my perception, Jen. This is my perception of why children start to rebel in their teens mm -hmm. because it is at that age where they realize or have the emotional capacity and awareness to realize that is absolutely nothing like what their parents said life was about. Yeah, they realize they've been lied to. <laughs> right. They've been lied to their whole life. Their entire life. Santa Claus is not real. Easter Bunny's not real. Tooth Fairy. You know, Christopher nope. Columbus was an asshole. You know, like <laughs> the Indians, the Native Americans got massacred. All this stuff, especially nowadays, because we're in the information age. It wasn't like when we were kids, you know, all we had were textbooks. It's like now you can go online and you can find out the absolute fucking truth about this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so you have Gen Zers, which, you know, they're pretty much like the new alternative grunge kids of our, of this generation. Oh, totally. They are yeah. growing up in a society that knows that's not working for them. So what I think is like, what, this is no, no surprise how teenagers start to rebel in their teens because they realize that no one, no one ever told them that life was this way. 
Well, it doesn't prepare them. It doesn't prepare them to have functional relationships, um, loving relationships, friend relationships, or it doesn't prepare, prepare them to like work a, a real job. I mean, yeah. you have to know that everything is not going to be perfect all the time and you have to learn how to regulate your emotions. And if you're shielded from, from, neg- from anything negative all the time, like you never learn those skills. You never learn how to keep your mouth shut or how to regulate your feelings. You don't learn any of those skills. It's true. Carl, Carl Jung um, had this quote. He says, wholeness of four humans depend on the ability to own their own shadow because he recognized that only by finding and understanding our dark side could we end our underlying insecurity about our fundamental goodness and worth as humans and in doing so make us whole, right? So that understanding about the polarities that exist, not even just about life, about how it exists from within inside of you. It's people's sort of disconnect with their own shadow, with their own fears, with all the things that they're afraid to really accept about life. That is what I think is generated by raising a child to not understand that life is change and that these sort of things exist. They grow up being divided, completely disconnected from the sort of shadow aspect of who they are, which is, you know, you can't escape that. That's just a part of the reality. And so you grow up not fully, fully accepting the fact that things aren't perfect, not fully accepting the fact that life is about change, not fully accepting the fact that there's death. And so you go through life afraid. You go through a life afraid of change. And what fear does is fear does some crazy shit. Fear does some crazy things when we are not uh, cognizant of why it's there. And a lot of one of the things that it does is it resists change. It resists change. So I think what we need to do is switch our perception of life. We can't alter life, right? No matter what it is that we do, we're not going to prevent the sun from shining. We're not going to prevent these sort of cycles in life from happening. The only thing that we can do is what's within our power to do, which is change our relationship to our understanding of those things. Exactly. And mm-hmm. it isn't the understanding that will just resolve the suffering all on its own. It's become, it has to be a practice, right? It's really about whether or not you choose to wake up every single day and actively engage in practices that can help you reinforce this understanding that life has changed. Because you'd be surprised at, you know, how many things there are in life that take us away from practicing even this sort of subtle understanding. There's so many Absolutely. things that create division. And and there's so many like small little techniques that you can do to decrease your suffering and increase your happiness. Something really simple like a smile, you know, like when you smile, it releases tiny neuropeptides, right? So um, that helps you fight stress. And then there's other neurotransmitters that that um, come into play too, like dopamine and serotonin and endorphins. And they all act as anti- antidepressants and, and minor pain relievers. So just the simple act of smiling, like even when you don't want to smile, it may seem forced at, at first. But if you continue to do that, just chemically your brain will change and it'll improve your mood. There's a quote, and I don't, um, I don't remember who said this, but I wrote the quote down. So, and I didn't, I didn't write down who actually said this. So, it's not me, not my words. Mm-hmm. But the quote is: um, "Sometimes joy is the source of a smile, and sometimes a smile can be the source of joy." I love that. There you go. That's really, really beautiful. There's so many different yeah. ways, little subtle. And the crazy thing is, is that's so subtle, right? It's just like a subtle mm-hmm. change that can completely alter your perception of how you see the world in front of you. 
I heard this talk from Sadhguru the other day, and I thought it was really, really interesting because they were talking about, I think the question actually was about suffering. Mm -hmm. And one thing that people are pretty familiar with is pretty much like uh, Buddha underneath the Bodhi tree battling Mara. The whole Buddhists have a, have a name for suffering. It's called Dukkha. And they believe that the source of suffering has to do with desire. As long as you're human, the act of wanting to desire something is fundamentally wanting to alter something that just is what it is. So desire is what creates suffering because it's basically like saying that you want something to be different than what it is in every single moment. Mm -hmm. And so what he was actually saying was in, in Buddhist circles, they talk about non-attachment. Like mm -hmm. you don't want to be attached to something. And what he was talking about is if you're attached, you suffer. If you're detached, you suffer. You become entangled because what happens when you practice this idea of detachment, you create an entirely new set of circumstances in your brain about what detachment means. And mm -hmm. that creates another desire to be free from, mm -hmm. right? So that's ego. And then when you have also, you automatically already have your relationship to attachment. So your ego already knows what that means to you. So he's talking about, it's not about willingly practicing detachment or attachment because both of those things you'll find suffering in. He's talking about to be involved because let me just put it this way, right? So if you're attached to your breathing, you can create anxiety. If we detach from our breathing, we can create fear, right? Because if we, we, we pay too much attention to our breathing, we notice that we start to sort of fuck with the flow of how we breathe. And that's where people start becoming overly conscious and can create like a panic attack. I've been that person before, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I even do that whenever I'm trying to meditate. I'll yeah. focus too much on my breathing and then I'll start like trying to control it. That's <laughs> yeah. like, no, 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 that's not what I'm here to do. I'm not trying to control my breathing. <laughs> right, exactly. So if you're too attached to your breathing, you create anxiety. If you detach from your breathing, you can create fear because then that creates another set of thoughts. Well, oh shit, am I going to stop breathing if I'm not involved with this? You know, yeah. there's like this distrust mm -hmm. that unless I, I feel like I'm involved, it's not going to happen. Well, that that also creates a barrier. So the goal, mm -hmm. I think, is to understand, we, we need to understand the, like the true nature and functions of all of these things and realize that breathing is involuntary. We don't need to do anything. It just is. Like breathing just happens, mm -hmm. right? It happens by itself. So you just allow it to, you just allow it to happen. And look at it this way. Life is happening by itself. Life is happening in and of itself. So we just need to allow it to be. And because we're a part of that, we need to get on board with that too, which is move through life and not get attached or detached or get too involved with how it moves. You become sort of like water flowing through a stream mm -hmm. and you can experience all the highs and the highs and all of the lows and the lows without actually getting attached to any of it. The only way that we could practice that is by like fundamentally realizing that Life consists of what Jack Cornfield calls, and I talked about on the last podcast, 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. We have to accept the fact that in life there is suffering and there is death. There's nothing that we can do about it, but the fact that it actually exists at all have to, has to serve a really large purpose, which means if God allows death to exist, there has to be some functional reason for it to exist. And I guess in my mind, I think there are so many different lessons and so many different forms of teachings, the millions and millions and thousands and thousands of people that are on earth going through their own sort of karmic lessons. And there are some mm -hmm. that are only meant to be here for five years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. And I don't think God is too concerned about how they go out. I think God is concerned with what you learn from the experiences that you have. And it's yeah, not that absolutely. any of it is crazy, but our perception of it being suffering is the craziest part. There's another Buddhist teaching about grounding yourself in the goodness of the universe, just like basic goodness. So no matter how bad your circumstance is, if you're having a really hard time and you're struggling, just reground yourself with 
the basic goodness of the universe. There is so much good. There's way more good than bad. I mean, we have to have bad to have a polarity, but there's so much goodness. And can you appreciate the goodness of that without interfering with it? Can you appreciate the goodness without clinging? You know, because that's the one thing that I notice about humans is like they will experience something really good and they're like, you know what? I want that. I'm going to try and find a way to put that in my pocket. I want to try and find a way to capitalize that. I want to try and find a way to wake up every single fucking day and have it happen exactly the way that it's happening right now. And we notice that the more we try and do that, the more we get in the way of new opportunities, Mm -hmm. the more we get in the way of the natural flow. Can we engage in what you're talking about without getting attached to the outcome and realizing that literally every single moment that we go through is beautiful. So there's no need to try and manufacture it into something in sort of like this one-dimensional box that you're used to experiencing it. Why do that when you can just experience this unbelievably vast spectrum of beauty every single day and every single moment? You know what I mean? When you're attached to the outcome, you're blocking your flow. You're blocking the flow of the universe to bring you more good things. So you have to let go of the outcome. Don't attach yourself. You've said this multiple times in this podcast, but don't attach yourself to the outcome. Don't attach yourself to the outcome. And I think in order to be able to do that, you just have to have a really good relationship with the sort of opposite side of your own coin, which is your own shadow. You know, the interesting thing, I actually watched this interview uh, from this YouTube channel called Off the Left Eye, and it was a Swedenborgian type of theology. It's basically kind of sort of like a Christian mysticism. And he was interviewing this guy named Tom Rose. Mm -hmm. He was an ambulance chief operation officer and certified crisis chaplain that worked for years as an ER, as an ambulance driver. And so the topic of this interview was about suffering. And what this guy had to say, and I've heard his name before on uh, actually other articles that I've read online, where he, obviously, if you're an ambulance driver, you experience a lot of ER patients, a lot of trauma patients that have gotten in crazy car accidents, that have gotten in you know, really, really bad situations that nobody wants to be in that typically involve a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And so he was asking this guy, he was saying that in the entire time that he was working in the ER, he had patients that would wake up from really, really bad accidents, from things that were very, very, he had thought to be painful. And he would ask, I always ask him the same thing. What do you remember? What do you remember from this experience? Was it painful for you? Did you go through mm-hmm. tremendous amounts of trauma? Every single patient said the same thing. I don't remember any of that. I didn't experience any pain, Mm -hmm. right? So not even in death do these people experience suffering. And that's really profound when I think about it because that death is one of those things that's obviously a much stronger force than our own ego. Not even in death do we have suffering. So why do human beings take it upon themselves to create it? It's something that's just largely moderated by our ideas and thoughts about life. You know, this made me think of a a personal story. So I used to live in these apartments that were right off of um, a pretty sharp turn and it was kind of a blind turn. And it was, I don't know, maybe like three, four in the morning. And I heard something outside and it sounded like an animal, like an animal that was dying. Uh And so I get out of bed and I look out the window and I didn't see anything. And then I heard it again, but then I heard a person's voice yelling for help. So I get up and I put my clothes on and I go outside and um, it was a car that was flipped upside down and the person was like hanging upside down in the car, blood everywhere, glass everywhere, car was like destroyed. And one of my neighbors came out too and he was like, hey man, I don't know what to do. Uh, I don't know how to help you. He was like, do you have any alcohol in the car? You want me to take it out? And I was like (laughs) thinking in my mind, (laughs) I was like, that's his first thought. (laughs) I don't want you to get busted. To ask this guy that's like, 
that's literally hanging upside down, bleeding to death, you know? Um, and I was a brand new nurse at the time. So I knew that I couldn't, you know, I shouldn't be taking this guy out of his car. Right. So the ambulance got there right after that and the fire department, they cut him out of his car and he lived. So happy ending, but I don't know. You were talking about the ambulance and it just made me think of that story. (laughs) So the moral of the story is the guy just wanted to protect his beer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My neighbor said such a redneck. Oh, I just wanted to make sure that like if he was obviously intoxicated that he wouldn't get in trouble. He wouldn't get in trouble. Everybody has these these wild sort of like uh, ways that they look at this sort of thing. I guess the way that I want to just talk about maybe changing our relationship to suffering is to kind of just put it in this way. So imagine you're a caveman and you're really hungry. You're actually really, really hungry. That's suffering. To me, that's suffering. Like there's something that happens in your body where you're, when you're feeling suffering at the most primitive level, it is something in your body that tells you that something needs to happen in order for you to survive. Mm -hmm. When we're hungry, I don't know if you've ever been really ridiculously hungry, but I've known people that like, they go long periods of time being hungry, they start to change. They start to morph into like these almost like more animalistic type of creatures that like they stop seeing life clearly. So oh, yeah, you go from hungry to hangry, exactly. hungry and angry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then if you add an AF there, takes it up an entirely <laughs> different level. You know what hangry I mean? Hangry AF. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Hang- hangry AF. So that is suffering. But at the same time, that is also a powerful motivator to get you to get out of your cave and go hunt for food. So maybe, it is. yeah, maybe it is it is necessary to existence. But if we're looking at it the right way, suffering is something that can light a fire under your ass in a situation that you really, really need to take action on, right? Mm-hmm. And I, this is where I put suffering and fear into the same category. Fear and suffering are two of these things that people are typically afraid to look into. But if we change our relationship to those two things, we can actually start seeing them as sort of like alarm systems. We can start shifting our perception and actually start seeing suffering as suffering and fear as a way for your body and God to explain something to you that needs attention, something that really needs you to pay attention and address. So if that's the case, then our suffering and our, and our pain and our fear are trying to tell us something. I wonder what that is. And I think that's sort of part of the journey, right? Lao Tzu said that he who knows others is wise. He who knows himself is enlightened. So, and this is a really, really important thing because especially in enlightenment circles, the first place that we start is with the good stuff. We want to know how to get to the top of the mountain. How do we, how do we accomplish this being happy all the time thing? How do we manifest joy in our life? Well, you know what? I think from my experience, you have to spend equal amounts of time sifting through your shadow and shifting through your darkness in order to really, really understand what happiness is, how to achieve that happiness. And it also involves really, really diving headfirst into what makes you suffer and really spending some time on that. And you'll find because we're all connected and we're all human, the, the, the reason is very similar pretty much for everybody. It is our inability to accept the fact that everything around us is only temporary and everything around us changes. And that's a, a sad thing for some people to experience because it makes you realize that maybe the life that you thought existed is completely not what you thought existed. But at the same time, I think your liberation exists in the understanding that life is about change because then you could release your attachment to things. You can even you can even release your definitions of yourself. This is how you Absolutely. can sort of continue to learn and evolve, realizing that there's a very liberating quality to change because then you can let go and you can stop trying to squeeze yourself into these little boxes that never, ever experience change. Like those people that are afraid of getting older, people that are afraid of aging. 
or people that are afraid of just any type of change in life, at least my experience with those people, they just seem to be some of the most stressed out people. Me being, I've oh, been one yeah. of those people before. That makes me think of a question. Do you, can you pinpoint or do you remember the exact moment when you t- started to change into a more spiritual person? Like whenever you maybe like became enlightened. Yeah, that makes me think of a story. And I'll, I'll answer your question. Enlightenment <laughs> isn't one of those things that happens in a linear fashion, right? People yes. think it happens that way, right? You, you, you go and you, you learn and you train and you go through this sort of curriculum. And at mm-hmm. some point you'll wake up one day and be like, oh, this is it. I'm enlightened. And then everything changes for you at that point. Now that could happen for some people, but I remember the, hearing this story from Paramahansa Yogananda and there was a student that was at Paramahansa Yogananda's feet. And the student-teacher relationship in Eastern spirituality mm-hmm. usually consisted of hanging out with the guru for an extended period of time. Back then it was like 12 years. It sort of lessened over time. It can be maybe four, it can maybe be five. I think as a result of the sort of revolution in the 60s, it became a little bit more sparse. People would go up there for like a sabbatical or go up there for maybe a few months. Anyways, at the end of this sort of thing, the guru would give you a name. And it usually sounds spiritual as fuck. It'd be like Guru Jagat, Adya Singh, or like some just really cool Eastern Indian name. And a lot of people down here in the West loved that. Because you know what they can do is they can go from the East back down to the West with this completely different name and let everybody know how spiritual they are. And that may actually happen, and I think there's some value to that. But in this story, there was this student that thought in his mind that at some point the teacher was going to give him a name at the end of his training. And he mm-hmm. thought it was going to be like when a knight knights a, a soldier or a king or something like that. Anyways, he was talking about like one day he was like washing the floor or like serving food. He was in the ashram with the guru just doing regular everyday things. And then Paramahansa walks up to him and says, this is your name. Just all willy-nilly. It wasn't anything too eventful. Just like that. Just like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that for enlightenment, it's not one of those things that I feel like you can pinpoint the approximate time. Your perception of life just starts to change. There's, I think, and suddenly you're able to see things from awareness. It's not so much as a sort of like existential event as people think. I mean, it can happen that way, but it can happen just by reading one passage in a book and all of a sudden everything just makes sense. You're seeing everything clearly. There's this Mm -hmm. obvious separation between your ego and awareness. And it isn't so much that like it completely, completely changes your life. I think it's like once you are able to experience like true presence, it's not that it does anything to you. It's just once you see the truth of how everything works, you have no choice but to change. It's just a switch in perception. That's all it is. (laughs) It's just a shift in perception. The shift in perception, at least to me, is realizing that when the ego is not working, there's something else inside of you that still operates. There's something else Mm -hmm. inside of you that still moves when you're not thinking about who you are, when you're not thinking about who you think you are, how life works. When the ego shuts off, there's awareness. And I think a part of enlightenment is really, really fundamentally feeling into what awareness feels like. And operating from that place. And it's just a subtle recognition. Like what Marion Williamson talks about is just a subtle recognition from fear to love. That's it. I mean, I don't want to, I'm not open by putting a damper on enlightenment is a really fucking cool process. But for me, it's more about the journey. Even if I said yeah. that I was enlightened at 5.30 p.m. on September 25th at this time, it's not going to be as extravagant as the fucking journey it took me to get there. You know what I mean? I was I wasn't thinking more like a a pinpoint date. It was more like a time frame. 
Oh, a time frame? Like a, a time in life. Yeah. Well, Jim, like, why you, you like, get all complicated? Oh, shit, you just, should have said that. Yeah, I should have said that. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't articulate that well. Sorry. Yeah. So you're saying it was, that, it's like, more like, um, yeah, like at, at what point in your life where you're like, oh shit, like when everything started to click and kind of make sense. Oh, I think everything started to click and make sense when I started really, really spending the actual, I mean, this is ironic that we're talking about this because it goes into what we're talking about. It started to really click and make sense once I started realizing how much suffering I was bringing into my own life. You Me know? too. Oh my gosh, that's so funny you say that. Yeah. Like the realizing that you are exactly the cause it. and the effect of of your life, that you are solely and completely responsible for all of that stuff that happens. Because at some point you realize that like you can't blame anybody else for what happens to you. You can't blame God. You can't blame your parents. You can't blame friends. You can't blame how you grew up. I mean, those things can send you on the path to understanding. But once you awaken, you can no longer blame other people for your life. It allows you to just take full accountability and responsibility over your life because you realize that you are the creator of how you perceive everything that happens mm-hmm. in life. I'm not 100%. talking about, I'm not, and I'm not talking about, you know, this, uh, like we're, we're never going to be able to alter life in the exactly the way that we want. We're never going to be able to eradicate suffering completely from the external world. But what you'll do is you'll stop extracting your happiness from things outside of yourself. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll realize how important it is to cultivate it within and I think once you do that from within, it everything from within starts projecting outwards and you're able to actually create the life that you want emotionally and spiritually. And I think in some essences, you can also do that materialistically, but we still have a very, very complex world that works in the way that it does out there. I think what it did was it allowed me to get into the driver's seat of my own life and allowed me to really, really fine tune how I react to every situation by isolating it down to whether or not I'm operating from awareness or whether I'm operating from ego. And I notice anytime I experience lots of pain, lots of suffering, lots of confusion, right away, awareness has to take that down because that's exactly what ego does to you, right? So right there, it just checks you and you're like, okay, that's ego. I need to shift the perception back to awareness. And it's such a subtle thing. And it's not something that you do. It's not something, a practice, to be honest. It's a letting go of ego and allowing awareness to just be with everything around you, you know? Yeah, it's just a, a reframing. You just reframe the situation. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a, I, it's just um, a framing. I remember the exact, the exact turning point in my life that really kind of shifted me onto a different path. I received um, uh, a gift from a patient. So a patient of mine, I was in my early 20s, and I would always talk to my patients. I worked in an infusion suite, so... I, you know, these patients were chronically ill, so they would be there for every six or um, four, six or eight weeks. And I was there for seven years. So, you know, I would see these people once a month, right? And you really get to know them. And it's the same people coming over and over. So I knew about their lives. They knew what was going on in mine. And um, I used to always uh, talk about how unlucky I was. I was like, yeah, I'm just so unlucky. Like weird things happen to me, like just stuff that that um, doesn't happen to other people happens to me. If there's like a possibility for something weird or bad to happen, like for sure it's going to happen to me. And um, I was telling uh, one of my patients about this and talking about something that was happening in my life at that time. And she was like, oh, I, I have a gift for you. I have a book for you that I think will really help you. She was like, have you ever considered that maybe it's you that is bringing this negativity into your own life? Mm-hmm. And at first I was offended I was like, what? You're all this like, bitch. No. 
<laughs> yeah, I was. I was like, this what the what the what is she talking about? You know, I was like, no, like I feel like I'm a good person. I don't deserve this shit. Like why would why would I bring this uh, ego, 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 negative ego, things into ego. my life, you know? Like your like, ego yeah. alarms going oh. off. It's like ding 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 oh, ding. Oh, big time. You won the time. fucking ego jackpot. And I was like, a, yeah. So I'm like a little offended, you know, and I'm young. I'm in my 20s and I didn't know shit. Oh, so yeah, of course. Um so uh, the next time she comes in, she brings me this book and she was like, I want you to read this and, you know, tell me what you think. So, of course, she brought me the spiritual training wheels, the secret. She's like, she's like the I Mr. Miyagi book. of their spiritual world. Yeah. yeah Did she make you totally. wash your car and wax the fence and all that whole thing? No, she didn't. She didn't. But she was, she did other things. She did other things. <laughs> we'll get into that in another podcast. But she was um, just really cool. Such a like cool, interesting lady. So, um, yeah, so I read the book and I started implementing some of the practices and surprise, surprise, my quote unquote luck started to turn around. So, you you know, uh, the, the lesson that I kind of took from that is luck is for losers. You know, Uh, it's not about luck. Like when you have the universe on your side, you don't need luck. And that is, uh, that was kind of the turning point. That is like where, where I learned how to manifest and where I learned because I started to see the change in my own life. And I took those teachings from that book and, and really did like a deep dive and an evaluation of like, maybe she's right. Like maybe it is me. And then I realized that it was 100% me. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was wallowing in my own suffering and creating yeah. my own suffering. And that yeah, goes that back is- to what I said earlier, you know, like we can, we can manifest suffering just as quickly as we can manifest happiness. And it's crazy when you realize that you have control. And I think maybe that's a part of enlightenment too. Mm-hmm. The second it hits you, you realize like, holy shit, I have a lot more power than I think. And then once mm-hmm. you realize that you have more power, you are actually in the sort of driver's seat of being God, right? You are tapped yeah. into the creative force of God when you realize you're magnificently power you, powerful you are. You can create your own world to be as beautiful as you'd like, but you could also create your world to be as miserable and as divisive as you want to. And that just shows you how 100%. compassionate I think God is because he lets you do whatever the fuck you want, but you have to be responsible with it. What what you're going through, what you told me was that is, is by definition what a growth mindset is, right? That is an abundance mentality. Maybe at some point when she told you that, you realize like how truly abundant life is. It maybe helped you realize and recognize how beautiful life really is and to just be grateful for that. And I think with that creates this trust that, you know what, I'll experience more good times. Like life is good. Why should I hold on and grasp onto these little fleeting moments? Because if I grasp, that sort of takes away from the experience of life and the possibility of potentially getting more of those things. It's crazy how we get on our own ways, you know? And also the openness to try it, right? Like people are so scared to do something different and they're like, oh, this isn't going to work. I don't need to manifesting. I don't need to do that. Oh, meditation. I don't need to do that. Like you got to be open to try it. And once you try it and you start to experience the benefits, then- then you'll understand. Well, yeah, it's not, it's I can't, I can't put that in words. Like it's one thing for me to say it, but it's another thing for you to experience it on your own. Yeah. They rule fight club. You don't talk about fight club. You know what I mean? It's one of those things right. that you just have to experience, you know, but it's crazy when people don't realize how much power they have. What they do is they get into this habit of blaming other people for their life being the way that it is. Imagine the type of living it must, what it must feel like to have no power yeah. or, or any agency over your life. You know, mm-hmm. you build resentment, you build fear, you, be, you build anger, and it just saps all of the energy out of you when you just leave everything responsible for your own happiness. And, and, and I'm talking about this because that is a projection. That's a projection outwards. 
that projection comes with it a desire to want life to happen a certain way. But the one thing that we don't know when we're 18 or when we're 20 is that we haven't accepted the fact that life has changed. So we're always in this sort of hamster wheel fighting against a life that is always changing, trying to preserve this image that we have of ourselves and really failing on the way there because we can't maintain it. We can't maintain the images that we have of ourselves because the image that we have is something that we want to stay stagnant, but the life that you're a part of, that the image is a part of, is constantly, consistently moving all the time. See, we run into this. We bump heads with life. It's no wonder why, especially young kids become like little psychopaths because they're just fighting (laughs) against the current of life that has changed. We have to accept the fact that that everything that exists is only temporary. Suffering exists when we can't accept change as an inevitable fact of life. You know, suffering exists when we fail to move and change with that life. And we can stop our own suffering by understanding the root cause of why we suffer and take action. Whether that's Mm -hmm. shifting our inner dialogue or doing things differently in life, like you're talking about, these little lessons, we try to resolve suffering from the outside in, I think, typically. But I think uh, we do that through material things with drugs, like we try and assuage the pain of that by trying to extract our happiness from the outside in. And I think that we need to, that shift of perception that we're talking about is cultivating that from the inside outwards. I see that a lot too, especially in the spiritual community. People try to use plant medicines as a way to heal trauma and heal all of these other things. But it's not the, it's not the medicine that is healing you, right? Like you have to take an active part in healing yourself. Like it's, It's it will show you the way, but you have to, you're the one that actually has to do the work. Yeah, that's like West, that a lot. And that's the way that we approach Western medicine, right? Like we 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 mm-hmm. were we got so used and so conditioned to not cures, but just sort of like these these empty sort of medications that just mask the pain that we feel. SSRI antidepressant medi- antidepressive medications are a perfect example of that. We've been taught at a very young age to not accept our shadow. Instead, we medicate it. We look for these really really easy ways of trying to get out of these complex situations through. Things like instantaneous solutions like drugs, we think it should just handle everything. All that does is treat the symptoms. You know, you're exactly. just treating the symptoms. You're not, you're not addressing the root cause. You're not addressing the root cause. All these things happen when we don't understand suffering. You know, it, it's crazy to me how, how much effort people put in into maintaining these sort of images that they have of themselves, right? We choose, it's almost like we choose an identity in life. The second you say, I am, that's one thing. I am is sort of an indifferent to any sort of like specific identity. But the second you put a name after that, it becomes a little bit more complicated. I am Eric. You know, you can move and flow for a while doing that. But Eric creates an entire identity around that character. But we make it a little bit more complex when we say, you know, I'm Eric and I'm a CEO. I'm a parent. This is the type of person that I am. You immediately create a limitation, an expectation of who you are. And that is a mental process that's not necessarily a reality because you are more than just a title or a word. You know, you may call yourself all these different names. You can call yourself weak. You can call yourself happy. You can call yourself depressed. We call ourselves all these different things and we try and embody these things. At least to me, when we start creating definitions and trying to embody these definitions, it's also a limiting condition too. Anything that challenges your sense of self-worth at that point becomes a threat whenever you have a very, very set way that you look at yourself, right? Because you can create an identity. You can say you're a CEO and somebody could walk down the street and tell you that you're not. And that can completely shit all over that whole thing. You know, have you ever been in a situation where like you thought you were this person and somebody came along and completely destroyed 
that image and it just crushed you? <laughs> I don't think that's ever happened, but you know, just I'm somebody sure coming have. by and like, like saying like, Oh, you're, I don't like your makeup or your shoes suck. Or like, you can even be superficial things. I think everybody at some point has come across this where you were pretty certain or comfortable with being a goth kid or mm-hmm. a skater or a musician. And somebody comes along and says, wow, that's how you play guitar? That's not really that good. You're not that great of a guitar player. Maybe you should choose something else. Maybe it's like a parent that would tell you that, right? <laughs> so it's like, yeah. I'm talking about all these different categories and all of these titles by it just by default will create suffering because we hold on to them so strongly. And then when some storm comes through and can completely dismantle all of that in a second. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that the best thing you can do is not hold so strongly to your definitions of yourself not hold so strongly to the things that you do and the things not be too proud and not cling on to those things. Like enjoy life and practice balance. You know, when you hold so strongly onto a certain image of yourself, you suck the very life out of, you know, the experience. You want to allow yourself to be open to actually moving and changing and being somebody completely different. I'm completely 100% grateful that I'm completely different now than I was back then. Like I realize the necessity of that. And I realize how beautiful that really is to change and get older. I think uh, if I had three things to take away from this podcast tonight, it would be number one, don't be attached to your identity. Number two, don't be attached to the outcomes in your life. And number three, don't be married to your ideas. Yes, absolutely. Those are the three things that I learned from this podcast tonight. Yeah. And if somebody in, in, in maybe like the fourth thing is if you ever see somebody in an accident, don't walk up to them and ask them if they want to take the beer out of the car. Yeah. You know? Call fucking 911. Call 911 like a normal person. <laughs> you know, I actually wanted to, I wanted to, to, to say this quote that I thought was really beautiful by Sadhguru. It'll be more like a really quick little dialogue that I think is really beautiful. And I wanted to share it. He says, life is about the creation that is here. Knowing it absolutely and experiencing it the way it is. Not distorting it the way you want. If you want to move into existential reality, to put it very simply, you just have to see that what you think is not important. What you feel is not important. What you think has nothing to do with reality. It has no great relevance to life. It is just chattering away with nonsense that you have gathered from somewhere else. If you think it is important... You will never look beyond that. Your attention naturally flows in the direction of whatever you hold as important. If your thought and your emotion is important, naturally your whole attention will be right there. But that is a psychological reality that has nothing to do with the existential. So that's beautiful because that's what what he's saying is that what is the most important is engulfing yourself sort of in just the natural flow of life. Basically everything that you just said, Jen, right? It's just moving with life, you know, not creating or getting lost in our ideas of how something should be and acknowledging the fact that life is changing. There's a beauty and there's a grace to that. And because of the fact that it exists, because of the fact that change exists, it has to serve some sort of larger metaphysical and spiritual function from the perspective of God. And from our experience of that change, there are so many beautiful things that come out of adversity. There are so many beautiful things that come out of the darkness once they've been there for long periods of time. So I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that, you know, suffering exists or, or these, these sort of shadow aspects of life exist as a way to sort of catapult us into this ultimate understanding that it's what we need to kind of sort through in order to awaken 
to love and awaken to our true divinity. And once we can do that, once we can awaken to that, I think we can really, really, truly start to appreciate and live life in the way that we want, which is flowing like a river through a stream, not allowing anything to keep us from that dance and that natural flow. We just move like water and just experience life as it comes and learn as much as we can about life on the way there until we can't anymore. Do you know what I mean? I know what you mean. You know what I mean, Jelly Bean? That was beautiful. Yeah. So yeah, suffering. This is something we're going to... And even, and even if we're talking about it, Jen, it's one of those things that is, it's, it's an ongoing thing. We haven't mastered it. I haven't mastered it at least. This is one of those things that sometimes you wake up every single day completely confident that you know what life is all about till that sort of wrecking ball comes into your life and changes and shuffles things around. No matter how enlightened you are, you will experience suffering at some point, right? You will experience that ego kind of come in and want to just mezzy up your day. And you just have to create a practice and hold it close to you and find ways to always operate from awareness and not allow it destroy your life when it comes through. You just got to be like a warrior with this shit because it will happen, you know? Agreed. Yeah. Like it will happen sometimes. You just have to be prepared and you have to just accept that change will happen. You know what I mean, Jen? I do. Yeah. So thank you guys for tuning in. Find Nobody's Podcast. It's been a really, really beautiful time. It's always a beautiful time sharing with you guys. This is a really, really good conversation because it's something that has been a part of my curriculum for a long time and something that's I've learned a lot of really amazing things from. So the hope is that you guys can also learn just as much. But thank you guys again for tuning in. If you guys have any questions, of course, you can reach out to us directly on the website or you could uh, email us at divinenobodies at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram. You like and follow and uh, subscribe to us also on YouTube. Do all the things and leave us a comment. Let us know how we're doing. Till then, we'll talk to you guys next week. Appreciate it. Love you guys. Namaste. Namaste, friends.